Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. Today we start a series of conversation on food allergies. We'll hear from UNC experts who specialize in food allergy treatment and research. Today's episode will discuss food allergy and food sensitivity. What's the difference? How can one be tested and then treated? And where is the current research and where is this field headed? Today, we welcome Dr. Edwin Kim, who is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology, and is part of the Thurston Arthritis Research Center. Dr. Kim is an allergist, and he sees people in the UNC Allergy and Immunology Clinic, and he directs the UNC Allergy and Immunology Fellowship Training Program, as well as the UNC Food Allergy Initiative. Welcome, Edwin Kim. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about food, which is a real passion of mine. I also realize that you're going to test me for food allergies at the end of this recording, so that's going to be an interesting experience. I hope so, yes. uh, I think uh, our field of allergies is uh, very much visual, I think, and so hopefully going through this test will also sort of show you what it is and sort of allay some of the concerns or fears that people may have about coming in to see an allergist about the, the food concerns that they might have. Right. So help me understand the difference first. What is a food allergy and what's a food sensitivity? They sound similar, but they're clearly different. Sure. And so uh, over the last probably five to 10 years, there's been some confusion because the terms have been sort of all interchanged. Thankfully, over the last maybe couple of years, there's been much more of a consensus on how to describe these. And so the way I usually describe it to my patients is that there are all kinds of things that can happen to you from eating a food. And only a small subset of those are actually going to be what we consider allergy. And so when we're thinking about allergy, I'm thinking about a specific reaction that's happening in your immune system after you eat some particular food, whether it might be shellfish or it might be peanuts or even red meat. And what this immune reaction can actually do is ultimately lead to a constellation or group of symptoms that can even be as severe as what many people have heard of as anaphylaxis and be life-threatening. On the other side, though, again, there are many other symptoms that people can have after they eat foods that don't lead to sort of life-threatening or even anaphylaxis. And so kind of more uh, recently, these have all been termed together of food intolerances or even food sensitivities. And the difference there is, again, the mechanism or what, what is actually causing that to happen is not always going to be the immune system, actually most of the time not the immune system. And then the consequences, like what actually happens to that? Is it life-threatening? Those type of uh, results from those foods are also going to be very, very different. And yeah, I, I do try to walk people through that because it is very, very confusing on, on what we're exactly talking about. So if you grow up as a kid and realize that there's a food that just doesn't make you feel good, or even as an adult, that there is a food that every time you eat it, you just aren't quite feeling right, that would be more of a sensitivity? Uh, Yeah. So I would ask a few more questions to get more details on that. Sometimes for even food allergies themselves, so again, these immune reactions that can lead to anaphylaxis, they can start out as just sort of being uncomfortable with the food. Uh, But in general, maybe a a simpler way is I'll explain kind of what we think of as allergic reactions, and then we can kind of talk about everything else which might fit into the intolerance. 
But when I'm thinking about food allergic reactions and potentially leading to anaphylaxis, this can be a combination of a lot of, uh, of symptoms all over your body. So the one that probably people are most familiar with is going to be symptoms on your skin. And so you could actually have red itchy bumps that look like mosquito bites or hives or even whelps is the term that some folks use. And they could be sort of around the mouth or they can be all over the body. Some people can even have swelling that happens from this, and so it could be a swelling of the lip or the eye, but probably the most frightening would be swelling that could happen in your throat, making it difficult to swallow or even breathe. Symptoms in your stomach are very, very common as well with, again, with the allergy type. And so there you could have horribly crampy abdominal pain to the point where you're kind of buckled over and not able to really function. And a lot of times that can even lead to vomiting as well, uh, and even, uh, unfortunately, to diarrhea as the reaction sort of progresses. Another category of the more scary type of symptoms that can happen in this case are going to be related to breathing. And so for folks who have asthma, they would recognize these exact symptoms, but it can be this uh, sense of tightness in your chest where you just can't get that deep breath, the shortness of breath feeling. Or sometimes it's just uncontrollable coughing or even this wheezing sound that comes out of your lungs. And, of course, the concern there would be that ultimately it could lead to not being able to breathe at all. How quickly does that do those uh, phenomenon, those symptoms occur after one's eaten something. Right. So they typically occur very, very rapidly. So the medical term we use for this whole group of reactions is immediate type hypersensitivity. And so the word immediate is the important thing here. And so very often for most patients, that even within, say, 10 to 15 minutes, they're going to start to have these symptoms happening. Occasionally, it can sort of take a little bit longer, maybe even out to an hour or two, uh, possibly due to maybe there's a lot on the stomach and it's taking longer to absorb. But uh, most people, it's going to happen during that meal while they're still there. And sometimes people will be excusing themselves to the restroom and then discover that, again, they're covered in these rashes or other things like that. That's a different phenomenon than, than the symptoms of somebody who has a sensitivity. That's correct, yes. And part of that would be a time, how quickly the reaction is? What what are the differences? Sure. So time is definitely one of those. Uh, in general, the, the allergies are going to happen very, very rapidly. So like we just said, within 15 minutes. Sensitivities, again, it's hard to generalize uh, because it probably it's a combination of a lot of different types of things causing reactions. But most of those you think of as taking a lot longer, sometimes even a couple of days to sort of show up. And so definitely time is going to be one of those. And then the actual symptoms that I just described as well. So uh, for a lot of these sort of food intolerances, food sensitivities that people are describing, the symptoms seem to mostly target around the stomach area, but usually you don't have a ton of things happening around the skin. So you don't have this kind of itchy rash that I described or the swelling necessarily. Uh, And most of the time you won't have the breathing problems, that chest tightness or the shortness of breath. But around the stomach, a lot of these patients will have sort of crampy pain that I may describe. Um, Very often they may have sort of a mix of either feeling constipated or having diarrhea as well. And so it does seem like a lot of the symptoms focus there. Uh, What's also different about the sensitivities is it does seem to have a lot of sort of maybe less physical symptoms that can come with it as well. So just this feeling of just being exhausted. Uh, We'll have a lot of patients sort of describe that. Another term that I've heard a lot of patients uh, use is brain fog. And I think anyone who's sort of experienced that knows what we're talking about with that. But it's just a sense that uh, they just can't sort of think straight and can't really function for them. And so there's a lot of other symptoms that can potentially come with this. But the physical symptom that most of them will talk about revolves around the stomach. So if you were to name the foods that that are most common causes of allergy, which ones are those? 
Sure. So we do. Uh, there is a group of eight uh, or eight groups of foods that we think of as accounting for pretty much all of allergy, about 85 to 90 percent of the anaphylactic type allergy. And so that's going to include milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanuts and tree nuts, as well as fish and shellfish. Uh, and of all those milk, egg, wheat and soy, as well as peanut, most of those show up in childhood, whereas these shellfish is a much more common thing to show up in adulthood. Another difference in those allergies is the milk, egg, wheat, and soy, thankfully, for most people, does resolve on its own in childhood, whereas the peanuts, tree nuts, and all the seafood, unfortunately, seems to be one that tends to linger for most, most of people's lives. And what are the common foods that are associated with sensitivity? Probably the most common one that we see in our clinic is going to be gluten. And, and that's where it can be confusing because wheat is also on that list that I just described to you about food allergies. And so uh, when folks come in with concerns about gluten, very often they've, some, they've done some reading on their own ahead of time and so come in. And so it's a nice conversation that I can have with them trying to talk about what we know and what we don't know about wheat. There's two diseases in particular that are pretty well explained and described that you can find medical literature as well as sort of online and in, in the lay press. And so that's going to be celiac disease as well as the anaphylactic type of wheat allergy. The celiac disease is, again, this inflammation that happens in your gut that leads to injury in your gut uh, every time you have gluten products and leads to watery diarrhea and can actually lead to a lot of weight loss. Uh, and uh, that one is pretty clearly diagnosed when, they, when your gastroenterologists are able to do an endoscopy and take a look inside. Uh, there are some blood tests to try to predict what, uh, whether the patient has it or not, but that endoscopy, although it is invasive, is really the best test for that. Again, a well-described sort of reaction that can happen with wheat. And then the anaphylactic type we just described as well. So again, those hives and the swelling and otherwise. Uh, but most of the patients who come and see me don't have either. And, uh, and for a long time, we struggled with w what is going on here. I mean, all these patients were coming in telling us, uh, every time I eat gluten, I've got these feelings of my stomach is, is cramping. I'm having diarrhea. I'm having constipation. I'm gaining weight. I feel terrible. I can't go into work. I can't even function at work. And, and like a lot of these newer diseases, when you first hear it, you kind of think, well, you know, it doesn't fit in the categories. I don't know what this is. But when you start seeing patient after patient after patient with sort of the same complaints, you start to wonder, okay, maybe there's some, something going on here. What is this? A nice thing over the last few years is that people have really embraced this and tried to start to understand this better. And the first step towards that is really giving it a name. And so what you start seeing sort of in the literature is this non-celiac gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance. And so I think... Although it's, it's sort of a wishy-washy name to it, I think it is a really, really important step that has to happen because that way people can really all focus on the same thing and then try to understand what in the world is going on here. Other than for gluten, are there other major causes of food sensitivity? We'll have a lot of patients come in and talk about different types of fruit causing problems as well. And so sometimes it's going to be very acidic type of fruits causing sort of rashes that just are around the mouth area or symptoms that are more severe than that. I mean, all manner Chocolate? Of, have you heard about chocolate? I, unfortunately, I've heard about chocolate. And the good news is for most people, uh, it is not a life-threatening <laughs> reaction that they can have. But there are, unfortunately, even folks who have chocolate uh, that can actually have some significant symptoms, again, mostly in the stomach, but also some mouth symptoms and itch that can come with that as well. So the way to figure out whether a person is sensitive or allergic mm -hmm. to one of these uh, food groups is with a, an allergy test. That's correct, right. How good are those? It can be very, very good, but I think it's important to understand what it does and does not tell us. And I think that's where sometimes people can get tripped up. 
And so we have allergy testing that can be done in two different ways. One of them is by skin tests, which hopefully you'll be okay with us trying to do today. Absolutely. Uh, But we also can get this through the blood as well. And what both tests are trying to do is actually find that part of the immune system that I had described earlier, this antibody specifically called IgE. But that is the part of the immune system that actually causes these allergic reactions. So these tests try to tell us, yes, it's there or no, it's not there. What we know, though, and this is where it can get tricky, is that we know that uh, having the antibody by itself doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have an allergic reaction. But if you have someone who has come and told you a story that sounds very much like allergy, and then you can prove that they have this, this positive test, they have this part of your immune system, it, it kind of, when you combine that whole story, it makes it pretty clear that they, they do have allergies. If you'd like, I can walk you through that procedure yeah, right and now. Yeah, absolutely. So just for purposes of folks listening, Dr. Kim has a whole uh, allergy testing uh, kit here, and I have my arm that no longer has a shirt over it, (laughs) and he has an alcohol uh, uh, swab, and I'm going to be uh, allergy tested, although I'm not sure that I have any food allergies. Sure. And so um, what we'll do today is uh, we'll test you to a couple of foods that have been on the list that I just described. So I'll go through testing you to peanut and to wheat, and then we'll do two controls. One of those controls should definitely become itchy, and I'll walk you through what that will look like. And then one of those tests should not be as our negative control, and that'll be plain old salt water, which no one should have a problem with. And I mentioned before that we could do the testing by skin or by blood. One of the major benefits of doing it by skin is it takes about 15 minutes, but you'll have a, re- a, we'll have a result at that visit as opposed to a blood test, which can take several days to get that answer back. And a lot of times there is a lot of anxiety around food allergy, and being able to give that answer pretty rapidly is very helpful. Okay, here goes. All right, well, let me start. I'm opening an alcohol swab. I'm just going to clean you off because I don't want to introduce... Uh, anything uh, from your skin and you know, underneath your skin as well. And I'm actually going to use a pen and give you a brand new tattoo, Dr. Falk. <laughs> and this is going to be uh, strictly just to label and make sure that there's no confusion. And so now, as you can see in my tray, I'm going to open this up. And within this tray, we've got uh, liquid versions, basically purified extracts of the different foods and pollens we might be concerned about. And there is a plastic pricker that is inside there. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this is not a needle. A lot of patients, uh, when they're thinking about going to the allergist, the first thing they think of is potentially being stuck by a needle. But what we do is a special test called a skin prick or a percutaneous. So the idea of this is just to scratch the surface of the skin. So there should be very little, if any, pain uh, that comes with this. So let me go ahead and do that right now. So I have a brand new tattoo. And I've just had a nice little skin prick which you can hardly feel at all. Truly a pricking little motion. All right. Didn't even know it happened. I think the most exciting part is that now I have a new series of uh, letters written on my arm uh, as as a temporary tattoo. Right. So in the clinic setting, now the next thing I would do is just to distract you, uh, to not have to think about it because occasionally it can be itchy. And the one thing I don't want you to do is actually scratch and kind of mix all the different testing together. And so um, we can talk a little bit more about foods. uh, But over the next 15 minutes, I'll be keeping a close eye and seeing what is actually happening to your skin and whether there is a reaction that may happen there. Let me come back to this issue of, of the vagaries of food sensitivity or even food allergy. Let's consider somebody a 
if they just have a really mild reaction after eating a certain food, and even if that happens on a number of occasions. So uh, over the experiential learning, the person knows that they're having some sort of mild reaction. They can't really put their finger on a specific series of things occurring, but they can live with it okay. Is there a risk for that person continuing to eat that food? And so here again, it becomes very important to differentiate between food allergy and then the intolerances and the sensitivities. What we know for the food allergy is that the reactions can be unpredictable. And so there, maybe nine times in a row, you can have a patient who perhaps is allergic to peanut and eats peanut and just has some mild stomach ache or maybe a really mild rash, but then that 10th time can actually lead to a full-blown anaphylactic reaction. And so in the cases of a food allergy, absolutely there can be a risk with continued exposure. So in that case, again, once a diagnosis is made, really it would be all about strict avoidance. So somebody who has, for example, a a shellfish allergy, if they're having a reaction to it once or maybe twice, boy, they should stay away from shellfish. That's exactly right because, again, it is unpredictable, and the last thing we would want is a life-threatening reaction to happen there. Now, for the intolerances, again, it's uh, sort of generally speaking, although, again, we're probably talking about multiple different types of food intolerances at once, uh, most of those are not going to be life-threatening. And at this point, we don't know if they're going to be progressive, meaning getting worse as you eat them more. And so in general there, uh, for most of my patients, if they, can, if they can tolerate the small amounts like you had described, I'm okay with that. But I do have them continually s- sort of reassess where they are. And if it is getting worse or it is affecting sort of their uh, regular daily activities, I need to have a conversation with them to talk about, okay, what are the risks and benefits of continuing to do this? Again, there is uh, more and more research into these food sensitivities trying to understand what is actually happening in the, in the actual uh, gastrointestinal tract. And we may find out that even the small amounts is not safe. But at this stage, uh, as tolerated, I think is important because avoidance, uh, as simple as it may sound, is, is very difficult. It's, things are better these days because foods are labeled better. But having to ask the questions everywhere you go, whether there, uh, it can potentially be contamination with these things is, is difficult. Uh, and then simple cost. So unfortunately, what we have discovered is things like gluten-free foods, uh, although many more are available now, they cost tremendously more. And so all of this can sort of add up to potentially making the quality of life actually worse, not better. Right. If somebody has uh, an anaphylactic reaction or really looks like they're allergic, let's use shellfish as the example. There are things called EpiPens that provide epinephrine for a real anaphylactic reaction, which you can get uh, as a prescription. They've been in the news recently since they cost so much money. When do you give somebody a prescription for an EpiPen? So anyone in my mind that's got the anaphylactic type of food allergy should have an EpiPen. Thankfully, life-ending, so basically fatal food reactions are super rare. Right now, we estimate that perhaps there may be a couple hundred of these per year, and that's over about 15 million people who have food allergies. So again, very, very rare. But unfortunately, the, uh, the testing that I described earlier and that uh, you're going through right now, Dr. Falk, it can tell us a little bit about sort of the probability of a reaction, but we don't really have any good tests that can tell us severity. So we can't really predict who these people are. And that is actually one of the inherent problems with food allergies. We have all these folks out there who are worried that that next ingestion could lead to something terrible. Right. But within those few people that do have the life-ending or the fatal food reactions, one of the, the themes that comes out over and over again is uh, not using their epinephrine soon enough. 
And so epinephrine really should be the first medicine that people are thinking about in an allergic reaction. I think for most people, again, Benadryl or an antihistamine like that is usually what they think of. But what we know with the Benadryl is that very often it's slow, so it can take anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes to work, and allergic reactions can really progress quickly. Uh, I described to you before, it can take maybe even 5 to 10 minutes to even start to happen. And you can imagine if you've taken your Benadryl and you're at the restaurant and waiting, it can really lead to a lot worse stuff. So uh, really having that epinephrine, um, but then having it in your pocket is not good enough. If you are having symptoms that are rapidly progressing, so you, you know, over a 10 minute period, you go from a couple hives on your face to covering your head to toe, and then you're vomiting, uh, or you're having anything at all that is uh, affecting your breathing or in some other way life-threatening. So you've got that swelling in your throat, or you're having difficulty talking or swallowing, or you're having just that type in your chest. For the majority of patients out there, uh, you're not going to be wrong to use epinephrine. Uh, some cases may be a little bit of overkill, but that's going to be better to keep you safe than to go the other way and start too small and then potentially get yourself in big trouble. And it's probably wise if you're having one of these allergic reactions, a real anaphylactic reaction, not to run to the restroom. For in fact, you can run to the restroom and run out of the reach of other people who can help you. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Yes. So uh, being around folks uh, and then usually if you're thinking about epinephrine, we're, we're saying that this is severe enough. And so someone should be calling 911 to make sure that you're getting immediate help. Right. Because that's where the problems have been with people who want to cover up that they are ha- having a anaphylactic reaction. And that's not the right thing to do. They right. They need to be publicly uh, calling for for help right. in addition to using their right. Yes, and there, there are definitely many stories that I've seen in my clinic of exactly that, people being embarrassed in a social situation to, again, just not be feeling right, um, and then, like you said, uh, disappearing to the restroom and potentially not coming back. And right. so, yes. Right, which is very different than the uh, uh, reaction to a food sensitivity where the process is so much, so much slower. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Imagine a person who is listening who has been having vague symptoms. They're not entirely sure why. They, they have just listened to your word choice of a brain fog or uh, not being able to explain why they are substantially fatigued. Or perhaps uh, uh, there is uh, a intermittent and perhaps uh, food-related problems with nausea. How do you determine whether somebody who has these vague symptoms that aren't clearly associated at all with eating, how do you know whether that's not, that is or is not a food allergy yes. or food sensitivity? Sure. So when we, um, now I will say in general, when we think of food allergy, the way I, I also explain it to patients is your immune system in general is not going to choose a bad day and a good day. In general, if you are allergic, Uh, A reaction should happen most of the time, if not every time you are exposed. And by virtue of that, when you have adults coming into clinic, most of them have been eating many of the foods in question for quite a while without having, obviously, a life-threatening or an anaphylactic reaction. So by default, many of the patients that I see, I'm automatically thinking, could this be some form of food intolerance or food sensitivity? Um, And so I usually, just like you had sort of brought up earlier, I do start with a conversation about the timing. And what are the actual symptoms themselves? And if there is enough concern there that you know this could potentially be an, an anaphylactic or food allergy, uh, then I go through exactly what we're doing on your arm right now of this skin test or and or blood test. Uh, at the very least, to try to rule that out because there, 
uh, that really changes my thinking. If there is a food allergy, like I mentioned before, we're talking about strict avoidance, so not even any cheating at all, and then epinephrine, and really thinking about 911 anytime you get into this stuff. Uh, so typically there, the first thing I'm trying to do is rule out whether in my mind or in a test form, the food allergy. Then with the sensitivities, again, here it's much more difficult because at this stage, there really isn't great research on what is happening here. Uh, folks are starting to do that by lumping all the patients together under this term non-celiac gluten. I think they've been able to sort of gather patients and start to look into what in the world may be happening. But at this point, I'm not aware of any blood tests, immune tests, uh, anything like that that has been very clearly diagnostic of this. Uh, and it probably makes sense because we don't even know the mechanism. We don't know why in the world this is happening. Uh, and so at this point, diagnostic testing is very difficult. And so what we end up doing is a, basically a food elimination and a reintroduction diet. So let's describe a food elimination diet. What do you do? You, you start with what? Right. So uh, again, we through the conversation, try to figure out what the, the highly suspected food may be. For many patients out there, it will be gluten. And so we would start with one food at a time, trying to change as little as possible. But the idea there would be, for example, for gluten, really going out there, reading every single label for everything that they're eating and trying to strictly avoid this food. And uh, typically in my clinic, I'll say for a minimum of two weeks, but many folks will advertise up to four to six weeks strictly avoiding this. So no cheating at all. And then just really continue to monitor the key symptoms that they're having, so whether related to the stomach or the, the fatigue or otherwise. And um, it's not a perfect test, but really there, then what we're looking for is a very, very obvious improvement, if not a complete sort of cure, really, of the symptoms. And the outside time frame there is what? Four to six weeks? Typically, yes. So about four to six weeks. And again, uh, easier said than done, for sure, right. uh, especially something like gluten, which is just it's prevalent everywhere. But then, you know, that part, a lot of patients are on board. Actually, many patients are already doing when they come and see me. But the hard part, which takes a lot of convincing from me, is then to reintroduce it. So, okay, sure, we have found that you're not eating it now and you feel all these things have gotten much, much, much better and you're just happy. And then I'm going to tell you, go ahead and eat 10 bagels and see what happens. And um, the looks yeah. that I get from patients are exactly the look that you just gave me of disbelief of, what are you saying? I just got better. Why? And um, the thought there would be by reintroducing, if we actually do see the symptoms come roaring back, well, yeah, I mean, it's not a perfect test, but it gives us a little more confidence that, yeah, this really is the trigger here. And I'm not avoiding the food just because, but there really is a connection. Now, can I say for sure after that test that it is absolutely a gluten intolerance and there is a, uh, you know, a mechanism, whether immune or otherwise? I can't say that. But I, again, I think it gives us more reason for the avoidance. Patients should uh, trust their, their own instincts, in other words, if they're not feeling well. What's the information like out on the web that you know, folk can look at? If you look online, you see all sorts of interesting and complicated and faddish diets. What you're describing is a very simple eliminating one food at a time, mm -hmm. but on the web, there's all sorts of other information. Where do you tell people to look and how to filter what is, what is out there? Yeah, so I, I, will, uh, I do want to quickly talk about the diets because um, you mentioned sort of the faddish diets, and, uh, and that, that is something that is complicating the whole picture. So there, there are a lot of sort of gluten elimination type of diets that have been advertised out there, and a lot of people do feel better from those type of diets, um, and perhaps because of better nutrition, perhaps of being more aware of what they're eating or whatever it may be. 
And um, so I do think it sort of muddies the water for the folks who have, again, what seems like this real non-celiac gluten uh, sensitivity. Uh, so the diet's, again, not necessarily bad, but it does confuse things that are out there. And just like you said, there is a lot of information out there. And really, if you look hard enough, you can probably find almost anything you want in the Internet. And so uh, typically what I usually tell my patients is to try to focus on sort of the big medical sites that, uh, that are out there. So say a Medscape or a WebMD probably the areas where people run into the most trouble are going to be the the personal the blogs and and folks who have sort of made themselves self-made experts and i you know again i don't think that they these folks are making anything up i think they're absolutely telling their own story but the problem there is that their story may not line up with most of the other people out there and i think that's the piece that sometimes gets lost in there and so um you know if some folks want to uh, look at some of these areas just for some reassurance that I'm not alone. Again, I don't fault patients for that at all because you know patients are advocating for themselves and for their own health, and I don't think you can fault them for that. But I do very much try to educate them as much as I can on what we know and don't know about these food allergies and food sensitivities, and then again guide them to these major sites like WebMD uh, and Medscape, like we had talked about. So, where's this field going? What? What research are you doing? What research are other folks doing that really will help inform uh, food sensitivities in particular? I will say most of our research right now is focused on the allergies. And then through there, we're hoping to also, in another way, understand more about the sensitivities. Uh, but unfortunately for the food allergy landscape that's been out there from, you know, from all these years, for the last 30, 40 years, there's been a tremendous increase in the number of food allergies and food intolerances that have been diagnosed. But sadly, to this point, we just still don't have a treatment for any of these food allergies. And uh, so one of the things that our group, the Food Allergy Initiative, along with Dr. Burks and his research group, have been trying to do is really focus, is there a way that we can actually reverse or protect people against these anaphylactic reactions that they are having? And so what we are doing is sort of the general term for this is immunotherapy. Uh, but I think uh, the simple way I explain it to people is trying to take small amounts of what they may be allergic to, again, whether it's weed or peanut or shellfish, and then give them small increasing amounts of it. The goal there, in my mind, is to try to find a, an amount that's big enough that your immune system sees it, but not big enough that you're having an allergic reaction. Right. And then really just sort of guide that up and try to build, um, build that immune system up against it. It's a sort of funny way to describe it, but really I think that's the best way to think about it. And then we try to not only do that, because in the short term, we feel like that is able to provide some protection. But then we try to keep them on that dose for an extended period of time with the hope that we are actually able to retrain that immune system and perhaps even turn off that allergy. And so we've done that in a few different ways so far. The one that we have studied the longest is what we call oral immunotherapy, or OIT. And so that is as simple as taking what you're allergic to and eating small amounts of it. In our research setting, normally that's sort of been in the form of flour, so whether peanut flour or egg flour, mm. um, but strictly because it's a research thing. Most recently, what we've looked at is a couple different ways that we could do the same immunotherapy. So one of them is what we call sublingual. And so what we have is very similar to actually what we skin tested you with, but liquid extracts of peanut or some of these other foods that we um, give some drops underneath the tongue and hold that for two minutes per day with the same idea of trying to, again, expose the immune system and retrain it. Mucosal, and, uh, mucosal immunity. That's correct. Right, right. And so, uh, and then the final way that we try to do, uh, we've been studying is what we call epicutaneous, essentially a medicine patch, which I think um, is the newest and, and has been quite exciting on the idea that maybe you don't even have to go near the mouth. And just, again, a medicine patch that you put on your body once a day. And if that can somehow get to your immune system and retrain it, that would be f amazing. Uh, and so all three of these approaches, um, we've, we've been involved in all three of these approaches here at UNC. 
And I think, again, what's really exciting for the field is that for the first time really, I mean, ever, is that we have a couple of products that are uh, seemingly very, very close to reaching the hands of patients. So two companies have taken, um, one of them has taken the oral immunotherapy product and another has taken the epicutaneous, and they are actually in phase three at this point with the FDA. And the hope would be in the next one or two years that we'll see some positive data. That would be great. That would be just wonderful. Okay, so... I can report that of the four spots that I have on my arm, uh, there's one that's clearly red and itchier for sure, but not bad. And I think it's going to be a, a measurement of the size of it. Right. So from the bird's eye view, I'll tell you this is great news um, because the two foods that we cared about look exactly like the saltwater, meaning uh, there's no reaction at all. You do have the one red raised itchy bump, which kind of looks like a mosquito bite with sort of a, a little bit of redness around that. And that's supposed to happen to show that your skin does react to the histamine chemical. And so I'm going to use my ruler and just measure the size of that bump. And it looks like the, the width of that bump is about 8 millimeters, and that's important to me because that tells me that the test did work well. And if you had a bump for any of the foods, I would do exactly the same thing of measuring that bump. And any bump that is 3 millimeters or wider would be considered a positive and then concerning that you would actually have, again, that antibody, that IgE antibody in your system that could potentially lead to anaphylaxis or allergic reactions. But the other ones just look exactly like the salt water control. And completely They're flat. Completely so great flat news. and and sort of boring looking. Right, so you That's can right. go back to have your peanut butter sandwich I, my on peanut wheat. But on wheat toast, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, this has been an interesting uh, on-the-air example of how an allergy test occurs, and I am none the worse for wear, so that has been a, a fun experience. Dr. Kim, thanks so much uh, for participating in this podcast, and thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to The Chairs Corner on iTunes or like us on Facebook. In our next episode, we'll discuss peanut allergies with one of the world's experts in this field, Dr. Wesley Burks. Thank you very much for listening.